0: And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 19, I am excited that we are getting back into our study of the book of Revelation and Revelation chapter 19. We've been doing a jet tour since last year. And what's a jet tour? Why do I have these jets up there? It's because I'm supposed to be flying through the book of Revelation, but I know, hey, we can be in this thing for five years. We're not going to be in it for five years. We're going to just be done in a, about a month and a half or so. And and so, to me, that's a jet tour, all right? Um, for those of you who are not with us, a jet tour is sort of a mix between a topical message and a verse-by-verse study. We don't um, say it's wrong to do topical messages. It just harder to do topical messages because topical messages don't keep a parameter, a confinement on anyone who's speaking. You've got to watch what you're going to bring into it, but they're allowable, absolutely, but the best way to study the word is word by word, verse by verse, and sort of we're going to have, again, you'll see a mixture in this. Now, I just wanted you all to even just keep thinking, like, why do we put the sermon at the end of a service. Why do we do that? Well, we do it because we want to really focus on God and God's word. If we believe the Bible is his word, it is paramount that we're trying to give it prominence. Now, the word comes through the songs, through the announcements, through different things that we do throughout the service, but it is ultimately us trying to come and hear what is God saying through the passage that we are going to be studying. Hence, why, when you go to church, you want a pastor that teaches the Bible. Because if I just get up here and tell you stories and jokes and, you know, personal accolades or something along that line, none of those are in and of themselves ever wrong. But if that's the gist of my message, If I read this verse or series of verses and then go talk about something else for the next half hour, that's not expositing the word of God. Expositing is a big word, but all it means is ex, taking out. I want to give you the sense of God's word. And so as we've come to the book of Revelation, we need to remember that this book means the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The title, if you just jump over to chapter 1, Um, put a marker here in chapter 19 but you know we get the title from the very first line the revelation the unveiling that's what it means the unveiling of Jesus Christ and as we come to chapter 19 which we're going to be in in a second we're coming to understand the return of Jesus Christ to earth this is where the entire book has been going we're trying to understand the big picture And this book is a book that we have said over and over and over is a book that can be understandable. Now, if somebody is visiting from another church, they might say, wait a second, I was at a church and we were told you can't understand the book of Revelation. Well, the reason is most likely, and I've talked to pastors that won't teach it, is that they don't hold to the fact that you just use the same normal reading principles. We throw in a big word here: apocalyptic literature. I, mean, I know you guys don't use that word on a regular basis, but what that means is end time literature. Do you know there are churches? They come to the Book of Revelation and they automatically say, "Well, we're going to have to read it differently. Just we're going to read it differently. When we when we see numbers, they don't mean numbers. When they, when we see images, we can't explain them. And and that's absolutely ridiculous. It is." Look at verse 3. You're in chapter 1. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So God expects us to be able to understand this book. And so when we read there are 12,000 from the tribe of Israel in chapter 7, it means 12,000. And when we read that there are, you know, uh, myriads and myriads and myriads of people That's when he's trying to convey An indescribable number I got that But like when you look at chapter 1 verse 19 It says therefore write the things which you have seen The things which are And the things which will take place after these things I mean this isn't just any great great mystery This book has a clear outline This book has What you've seen Okay what did he see Well he saw the resurrected Jesus Christ who no longer looks like a 30-year-old you read chapter 1 and Jesus is terrifying looking chapters 2 and 3 are the seven churches of revelation they are they are going to be listed here in a second in chapters 2 and 3 with detail but chapter chapters 4 through 22 what will be okay and that's where the gist of this book goes It deals with a future prophecy. And so we can understand this book. We can understand that we can understand that when it says a thousand years in chapter 20, it means a thousand years. And you know, you say, What are you talking? Why why even bring that one up? Because that is so critical. We believe that God has a plan for Israel, for the church, to be part of a reigning when God is on the earth for a thousand years. We call that the millennium. Most churches don't believe that. You know why? It's not some, like, mystery. It's not like some, like, oh, my goodness, we've got some special insight. They literally come to chapter 20, which we're going to get to, see the word 1,000 that's repeated six times and say, we can't a 1,000. <laughs> Just, that's, it. that's the and, 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 and you know, one of the things I was like really excited when I go into seminary, I'm studying Greek and I'm studying Hebrew. Like, well, Am I going to figure this out? How, what's the big mystery here? We're just not going to believe it. We're just not going to read it that way. We're, we're just going to say it means something else because it's apocalyptic literature. And you scratch your head and you, you talk to these people who go to these other churches and you say, well, why don't you believe in a thousand-year ring? Because our pastor says so. That's what our churches always believe. Well, we just, and then you get to the heart of it, we just just don't think you should read the Bible that way when you come to the book of Revelation. And it's absolutely nonsensical because words mean things. Chapter one, if we are to heed this book and read this book and have it impact us, then the words have to mean things. And even though it's tied to history, because when we said, look, I said there's the seven churches of the book of Revelation. These are all real places, okay? And interestingly enough, if you go to chapter 2, and it starts talks about Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, it is a circuitous route that we believe that the, the person who was carrying the letter from John, there's an island, okay, and this would be modern Turkey. And maybe someone later can tell me where the earthquake happened in Turkey. I don't know modern. But this is, this is what's called Asia at this time. But today, it's called Turkey, the country of Turkey that just had the earthquake. And off of the, uh, off of the land, there's this little island called Patmos. And John is there. Why is John at Patmos? Because, because John, they couldn't kill him. Remember, we have said. Besides, once Judas is off the scene, every disciple gets killed. But but they try to kill John. There's reports that they actually put him in a boiling pot of oil and tried to kill him, and they couldn't kill him. So what we had to do is well, we're just going to put him on this island because they thought, oh, maybe there's some supernatural happened or something like that. Because obviously they could have chopped off his head, but they don't do that. They put him on this island, and it's from there he writes first, second, third John writes the book of Gospel of John. And he writes the book of Revelation. All right? So, but my point is that if you're writing apocalyptic literature that has no meaning and it's all esoteric, you don't start writing about real places with real things. And that's what we just want to keep reinforcing to you that when you come to the book of Revelation, it's tied to history, it's tied to reality. And it's tied to something that you could know. So, as we come to chapter 19, and you can turn back there. Let me digress for a second. Because as we come to chapter 19, we are coming to, I believe, one of the greatest events in all of human history. Now, if you had to rank what are the top things ever in life, maybe the birth of one of your children, Maybe your wedding day. All of those are great, and they're personal, though. But we talk all of humanity. These are, the top, these are the top events, okay? And I'll come back to this. Let me come back to this one. These are the top three events ever, ever, all right? Number one, the birth of Jesus Christ. Number two, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then number three the return of Jesus Christ to earth. Have you ever thought about that? When I just said that these are the top three events, that's not hyperbole, that's not exaggeration. Do you ever think about one and two, you celebrate with holidays every year? Think about that. You have Christmas and you have what the world calls Easter. And everything in this book has been focusing on to where we're coming in chapter 19. Where we're coming in chapter 19. Chapter 19. Now, I jumped over, and I'm going to have to jump all the way back. Um, But the reason when we come to the book of Revelation, it is a book that is unfolding about how these events are happening, how we're coming to this. And we have said that you can take the book of Revelation and you can outline it with this timeline, a timeline that basically ties back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, that there's a seven-year period coming for all humanity that has not yet happened out of Daniel's prophecy. And we know after we tied everything together, this isn't some complicated web you know, of, of intricate passages that are all turned on side their head. No, it's just a real simple understanding that there's a seven-year tribulation coming There's a beginning time called the beginning of sorrows from the Gospel of Matthew. There's a thing called the desecration of the temple, which means the Jews are going to have to have a temple, which when I was in Israel, two times I went and visited the Temple Institute. And you go to the Temple Institute, not run by Christians, but run by Jews, and they have all the material for getting the temple rebuilt. Now, you can't make this stuff up that they are going to rebuild the temple. And if you see it in your lifetime, that is exciting. Now, it could, we could have this event called the rapture, and we're taken off, and then they rebuild it. But if you see it in our de- time, wow. But it's a real simple outline. When we come to chapter 19, here's where we're at. Now, we've just come out of what's called the Great Tribulation and the great tribulation really dealt with the final trumpet and bowl judgments. Remember the book of Revelation has seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. Why does God take so long to just blow up the earth? We should all know by now. 2nd Peter talks about the fact that God is patient but patience is running out. And God, instead of just bringing ultimate destruction right away, is allowing mankind opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Am I just making that up? No. Because throughout the book of Revelation, there was these comments, and man refused to repent. Man refused to repent. Man refused to repent. repent." So, we're watching God try to say, wake up, wake up, wake up. Well, let me just read chapter 19, okay, and I'll go through this again. And, and we look at verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1, and it says, And after these things I heard something, something like a loud voice a great, of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he's avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Verse 5. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let me just add one verse that's tied to this, verse 7. Then let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, what we're going to do over the next two, three weeks is we're going to look at this chapter, and it basically breaks down, is first and foremost, for you to see the joy. Okay, what God wants you to see is the joy over the victory against evil. And amazingly, this is the only time in the New Testament that this word appears. Watch this. This is me getting really fancy here watch this hallelujah hallelujah and i like this one because it's hallelujah amen because that's the third one it had an amen in it okay and then hallelujah fourfold hallelujah many of your bibles have a like a heading the fourfold hallelujah so let's explain this all right you look at the very first line verse 19 says after these things What things did you just hear or see? (coughs) What what, What did these things? What did John just get told about? Where he also got to see him. John got to see the bold judgments. All right, and remember the bold judgments. We don't know if they happen over a week or a couple months or whatever, but it is where God is in the process of killing everybody that's an unbeliever on earth. Everybody that's an unbeliever. And God has sent an incredible earthquake, like has never been felt on the earth. That's chapter 16. And He's also started. Well, the the armies of the world have come together for the battle of Armageddon. And I just want to show you this. This is kind of interesting. If you go to chapter 16, you go to chapter 16, and it talks about in verse 17 that the seventh angel poured out his his bowl. Okay. And, um, and, and let me just leave digress one more. Chapter 16, verse 13 says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Okay? For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of the Almighty. This is the battle of Armageddon. We've already started seeing... It being described, this is the battle of Armageddon. All right? When we go through verses 17 to 21, you're seeing these angels, the angel, the seventh angel, is going to have this flashes of lightning, verse 18. There's going to be the great earthquake. The great city, which is Jerusalem, is going to be split into three parts. Every island is going to go away. Every mountain is going to be leveled. Huge hailstones come down, and basically, you have this incredible destruction. Well, where's the battle of Armageddon? It's coming. This is what's missed. But John says, Stop. Let me tell you about the great harlot. And if you weren't here with us, I'd encourage you to go back to one of our podcasts, go back to one of our YouTube videos, because we went through chapter 17 and 18 as it talks about this spiritual entity, this being that is called the great harlot of Babylon, how it's a movement of false religion in chapter 17 and false economic emphasis in chapter 18. And how Satan uses it and then destroys it and how God eventually just destroys the entire system in chapter 18. So with all of that to understand that's when you go back to chapter nineteen and it says after these things, and when we when you come to verse seventeen, which we're going to get to in chapter nineteen, then the battle of Armageddon takes place because he says then I saw an angel standing in in, in, in the sun when he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in in mid heaven come as assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders, okay and the flesh of the mighty men so. <laughs> you know not your afternoon sunday brunch all right um this is the battle of armageddon so you see how it's it's like divided and if you're not paying attention but you you can miss that there's this connection there so you have to understand that when the bold judgments come it's clear that god is absolutely done with doing with evil and so you get, you get this hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. So you see in verse one, it says hallelujah. And then you see in verse three, hallelujah. And you see in verse four, it says hallelujah. And you see in verse six, it says hallelujah. And what you have here is a word that basically means praise God. And it is a, one of the only words in the New Testament that is translated literated and i want to emphasize this so that we understand we all should understand what does it mean to be translated versus transliterated here's some big words for you you know sunday lunch hey let's let's talk about the difference between translated and transliterated <laughs> okay translated i think we all can understand it's like you know if i am reading italian and I come across Italian, and it says, amore. I could do this off the cuff here, all right? And I read amore, and I'm just going to say to my wife, guess what, I love you, right? We all know that, that, you know, different words in different languages. You can understand, you take a word, and I don't come to her, and if she didn't understand Italian at all, I wouldn't keep saying, amore, amore, me. She, she wouldn't understand what I'm saying. But if I say, I love you, I love you, she finally gets it, right? Because she can understand English. That's translated. What's transliterated? Transliterated is when you take a word as it is in its original language, and you then almost use the exact spelling and sounding so that when you use it in your language, it is sounding the exact same. All right? Give me an example, Mike. I'll tell you. You're great. In the Greek, when you come across the word baptismo, it means to immerse, all right? So when you come to Matthew chapter 28, and it says, go make disciples, baptizing them, when King James is having the the Bible written into English in the 1500s, guess what he's doing? He's sprinkling infants He's a head of the Anglican church. He decides, look, if they translate the Bible the correct way and use the word immersion in in Matthew 28 and other places, they're going to know, guess what? Sprinkling isn't valid. So what I want you to do is come up with a new word. And that's how they come up with the word in English, baptism. All right? Where am I going with all this? For whatever reason, in Hebrew, hallelujah, they took that word exactly. And instead of saying praise God, they said hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Now I would have thought the word hallelujah would have been all through the New Testament. It's here only four times. It's only here four times. So let's look at what is being conveyed here? And I really like, John MacArthur did a really good job of, the, of giving us five reasons, and we can just pull them from the text, five reasons this praise emerges. Number one is this, all right? Deliverance from the enemies, okay? So look at, look at verse one. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And the key word is salvation, deliverance. Now, salvation, sometimes we think of just going to heaven but it can also sometimes just mean you're in a bad spot. And the reality of it is, is you're delivered and put in a safe spot. And, and I tell you, as you look at the fact that, remember, in the tribulation, evil is no longer held back. And it's killing Christians or people who are followers of God like left and right and and so it's finally over so there's the sense of salvation and that's why it's glory that we're magnifying god and the idea of power in the sense that god is the one who's going to be who's the victorious one so there's deliverance from enemies and this is where we're all going this is where you know we're finally you know we're finally out of this world where we i keep to try to remind you we don't live in a morally neutral world and then you've got to be cognizant of it this is why i'm asking you you know somebody said well why do we you know read our bibles all every day or why do we pray every day because every day you're going out to war okay you guys have to understand ephesians chapter 6 says put on the armor of god why because every day is a battle and, and sometimes, you know, one of the scariest days that I wake up and all of a sudden I'm late. You, ever, you all wake up late and you don't have time to read your Bible. You don't have time to pray. I am finding I'm making it more and more. I'm going to read no matter what. I'm going to pray no matter what. And I'll even get a prayer out God, just protect me this day. I want to want you to always recognize the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. And, and Satan is aggressive. You may not want to fight today. I, I mean, I've never been a soldier. And I can imagine if I was out in the trenches, there'd be a day in the middle of the fight, that I'd wake up and I'd say, you know, I just don't feel like fighting today. All right? And, and, and you know, I sure would like to have a scene. You ever seen that scene from where they reenacted it from World War I? It was, maybe someone could be a historian and tell me afterwards, there's supposed to be a real scene that really occurred, World War I. They're in the trenches, and it's Christmas Day, and I think you had the Germans on one side, and you had the English on the other. And they're killing each other, but it's, they wake up, and it's Christmas, and for whatever reason, one of the Germans, I think, comes across to the English, and these guys who've been killing each other stand end up playing soccer all afternoon, getting together and hugging one another. It's, it's, a, it's one of the most tear-jerking reenactments I've ever seen. But then they decide the next day they go back to war and they start killing each other. My point is, is that you know, we'd all love to just say, stop the battle. I, you know, Please don't, don't, don't come after my wife. Please don't come after my children. Please don't come after me. But we don't. We don't have that privilege. And the more you think that you're in a morally neutral world, the more you are susceptible to attack. The reason this is a hallelujah is it's finally over. There's no more. And you say, you know, Mike, you told me in chapter one, verse three, read the book of Revelation and heed it. You know, you went through the seal, trumpet and bull judgments. What am I supposed to do with that? You're supposed to recognize this is the where the world's going and this is where it's going to be. But it also reminds you that there's no victory until this occurs. And since this hasn't occurred, you can't rest. You can learn from the book of Revelation. The only time hallelujah is used in the New Testament is now, because now it's finally, praise God, it's finally over. Second, what do we see? We see meeting out justice. And you see that there is the fact that he says in verse 2, because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth and her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bond servants on her. And I tell you, you know, when you want justice, you want someone to get theirs, and God has told you, Mike, don't take revenge, don't go, don't go after somebody, Justice is mine. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, because my digression there, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, because if it was me, I wouldn't take out an eye for an eye. You hurt me so bad, you did something so bad to me, I'm chopping your head off. I mean, I know somebody (laughs) that's an unbeliever and they talk about all the time the things that they want to do to unbelievers. And we're talking vicious things, right? And and I'm talking like, let's slit their throat. Let's wrap them around a pole and put them on fire. You know, get, you know and, and stuff like that. Well, look, I want justice for people who are murderers. I want justice for people who are rapists. I want justice for people who are thieves. I want justice for people who are liars. I mean, somebody goes out there and tells a lie about somebody, that's no small thing. And we must remember that when we come to chapter, I believe it's 20 in the book of Revelation, you got all these despicable characters. And what, what does God go after? He talks about the fact that these people are all going to end up in the lake of fire, but the ones that are going to blow you away are all the people who are liars. We've got to understand, lies matter. So, anyway, meeting out justice, they're going to get theirs. And that's hallelujah. Third, what do you get? Permanent crushing of the enemy. So, when he has said, verse three, and a second time they said, hallelujah. His, her smoke rises up forever and ever. The idea of the smoke rising up forever and ever is, in, is the idea which I think is if the literal makes sense, it makes no other sense. I believe as they're thrown into the lake of fire, the smoke will continue to rise up. And somehow, some way in heaven, we'll be able to see it. And guess what? We will see it forever. And the idea is these people aren't coming back. There's no rising up of the Babylonian harlot and the false religious system or the false economic system. You know, it gets kind of like, you know, interesting in the sense of putting your theolo- theology together because we know at the, the, the thousand-year reign is coming and God's going to let Satan out, but it's going to be different. It's not going to be the same. It's not going to be a long, pro- pro- prolonged religious system that's going to have its way for the longest time. But this is the general defeat of the world religious systems. It's done. It's a permanent crushing of the enemies. And then we have God's sovereignty. And we see see, um, in verse 6, it says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder. So the idea here is it's resonating, and I wish I could have that voice that would just echo and just carry the peals of thunder that would just... Rumble, rumble, rumble. And I don't know what I can make it akin to. I don't know if any of you have ever gone to a sporting event or you've ever gone through a music concert and it's just rumbled, rumbled, rumbled. I've been to sporting events where I've been outside the stadium and I can hear the crowd going crazy inside and you wonder what's happening. This will be a rumbling, rumbling, rumbling like never, ever in history. And I don't know if you caught all of this. This is all happening in heaven. Who's the people doing this? These are people that I believe are believers that have died, believers who have been killed in the tribulation, as well as the angels that are out there. And so when you come to um, verse 6, it says, Hallelujah, for the Lord, the Almighty reigns. And the word Almighty there means, um, uh, uh, I'm going to get the exact word here. Um, the omnipotent, he, he's the all-powerful. There's nobody more powerful. He is the all-powerful, and so it resonates that this guy is is not going to be defeated. And how important it is for us when we look at life and we think times we're kicked down, we're beaten down, we seem like we're losing, but we've got to remember, God wins. And and that's, it's like, if you were watching a sporting event, like you were watching uh, the Super Bowl, and it was 100 to nothing, and your team was losing 100 to nothing, and it was like one second to go, and it looks like, oh my goodness, there's no chance my team could ever win. With God, he can score 101 points in the last second. And I think we got to recognize that. We got to remember, he is sovereign. Sovereignty, big word again, all it means is he's control of everything. He's not going to lose God's not losing. He's the Almighty. He's the Omnipotent. And then lastly, you get this idea is when, when you roll this into verse 7, I wanted to catch this, is when it says, Let us rejoice and give glory to God, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. We'll go more into this in the sense that God is basically, basically going to be now on earth. And that's where this is all going and, and the idea is, is that where I've been trying over the, over the past few years to emphasize so many people have the wrong idea about heaven. They keep thinking it's just up in these clouds. When We have to remember God brings heaven to earth and we live on earth forever. And all of that takes place. All of that. All of that is starting to unfold permanently when you come to chapter 19. Now, there's a commentator, named name Alan F. Johnson, and he wrote in the Bible, um, he wrote um, a commentary where he wanted us to understand this word, the root word for hallelujah is hallel, and it means praise, and how this meant everything to the Jewish people, and, and when they were in difficult times, they would be hardship. They would read the Healal sections of the scriptures. Where is that? Do you know? it's Psalm 113 to 118. Go back there. I want you to have this. And, and you could have just included you, you could have just included um, You could have included 111 and 112, but when, when I say to you Psalm 113 to 118 is the praise section of scripture, if you're ever down and you need to focus on God, all right, <clears throat> I want you to um, go to this section of scripture, and you see Psalm 113, verse 1. When the Jews would have Passover, they would have these psalms read, And immediately, some of you should be saying, well, wait a second, Passover, Good Friday, Psalm 118. It ties into, well, ties into the triumphal entry. When Jesus is coming into the the city and on that faithful Sunday, and they're all yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. That's in this section. So look at chapter 113, Psalm 113, verse one. Praise the Lord, praise those servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay, You, you go into every one of these sections, these passages, Psalm 114 talks about God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Psalm 115 talks about how heathen idols are going to be defeated. And you look at the very last line of Psalm 115. It says, praise the Lord. From, From this day forth and forever, praise the Lord. And then you go to Psalm 116, and it's one of the most important psalms that talks about God knows when any believer dies, and then he comes to verse 19 at the very end, and he says, praise the Lord. Psalm 117, you may not all know this, but when we put this new sign 20-some years ago outside of the church, I had them carve in there Psalm 117, the, the reference. Look at praise the Lord, all nations, laud him, all peoples, okay? Praise the Lord is the essence the world needs to know about praising the Lord, and then Psalm 118, give thanks to the Lord, verse 1 says, and it jumps all the way down to um, um, the, the idea of uh, verse 25, O Lord, do save, we beseech you, which translated into Aramaic and English is Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's all about praising God. So to me, go back to Psalm 119, and I want you to understand Let me see how I got this. Okay. I want us to have this idea about the joy over the victory of evil. The reason I wanted you to have joy is the fact that you are to look at Psalm 119 and recognize you win. I mean, not Revelation 19, and you're to know that your team wins. And it's a victory against evil. And all week, there's been, in the back of my mind, with thinking this through, is the idea of one of the characteristics, the traits, so you can look this up your own. You just write it down, Romans 12, 9b, the second part of Romans 12, 9, is what are Christians supposed to do? But we're to abhor evil. Well, if we abhor evil, we hate it. The more you hate something, you are someone that has great joy when it's taken out. And I think that's what's going to be when when we understand that evil is finally gone. And I've shared this with you before and I've asked you to think about it. But do a study on in Proverbs or another study on evil. What is evil? Evil just isn't sinning. Evil is not is a concept of, of an embodiment of trying to do the most wicked, the most anti-God kind of things. Evil isn't just sin. And a friend of mine that just went through a horrible, horrible situation with, um, with someone coming after him, destroyed his life. And he said, Mike, he goes, I, wouldn't, I've never, I never would have understood evil until this happened to me we're talking about a guy that had everything going, had a perfect family, had a perfect job, everything going for him. He lost his job, he lost his reputation, he lost his family, and it was all based on lies. All a lie, but he couldn't beat it. And he, and he may never beat it in this world, but he goes, Mike, I've learned how much evil is aggressive. And some of you have come face to face with evil. Evil people... And we need to understand there is evil in the world. There are evil people that slit people's throats. There are evil people who rape people. There are evil people that lie and they keep lies going. And and, and they ruin people's lives because of lies. And we know now that there will always be people that are going to promote lies and keep people out of heaven because they teach the wrong gospel. So what I want you to do is remember this. I want you to always remember evil loses, I want you to always remember evil people lose, and I want you to always remember our victory is assured for one day. And the only way to be on God's team is to have faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know you're born again? Because only born again people go to heaven. Only way to get to heaven is through the gospel by believing, and belief is not mere agreement, it's a commitment. If you're not committed to Jesus Christ, If you're not trusting in the gospel, then you're not going to win at the end. You're going to be on the losing team. Now, you know, if a week ago you would have told me Sunday morning that the Kansas City Chiefs were going to win the Super Bowl and they were going to win by three points, and if I was a gambling man, I could go out to the casino and I would bet, because I knew what was going to happen, a million dollars. And I would be a million dollars or more richer because I bet. All right? Now, you know, there are a lot of people who gamble in this world, and a lot of people lose, and the reason the casinos keep getting bigger is because most people end up losing because people we don't know the future. And so I don't gamble. But I can tell you my victory with Jesus Christ is assured. I know for certain that Jesus is going to win. I want to be on his team. You are a fool, to be on the wrong team, and unless you know for certain that you're on the right team, you're playing with fire. You know, if you go to bed at night and you don't know, you better find out. This is the most important thing in the world. So, even if we seem far behind now, we are going to win. So, have this knowledge impact you. For you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Rejoice with this. There are some times you guys lose. And, and and life hurts. And life kicks you in the face. And 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 I think if I let everyone come up and give testimony this morning about some way in which they feel like life has kicked them in the face, I think we could be here till next Sunday. Right? Because it, life is bitter. But there's got to be a sense of inner peace that we know we win. And then... I think because we know that we're going to all face God, it impacts us to not play the game of sin. We don't get caught up in internet porn. We don't get caught up in lying. We don't get up in taking revenge in our own hands. We live holy lives. And then we serve because we recognize this world is passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God, what? Abides forever. The person who continually takes their time, talent, and treasures and puts it on themselves, you're missing it. Because the reality of it is, is everything that you're investing in is going to be destroyed. Everything. Second Peter talks about how everything is going to be melted away. So, Revelation 19. It's not just some esoteric, futuristic study that has no impact on me today. My hope, my desire is that it packs you today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you've given us in Jesus to know that he is going to be ultimately ruling and reigning. And I hope, Father, that today it helps reinforce in all of us the incredible reality that we have of knowing that our team wins through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.